We are uh, continuing our psalm study, so Psalm 139. We will start with our summary statement here for Psalm 139. Psalm 139 praises the knowledge, power, and presence of the Lord to carry out his purposes toward David. So I'll go over that again. Psalm 139 praises the knowledge, power, and presence of the Lord to carry out his purposes toward David. A simple outline for the psalm be verses 1 to 18, knowledge of God. Verses 19 to 24, the way of everlasting life. Go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 18, knowledge of God. Verses 19 to 24, the way of everlasting life. All right, we'll go to our observations. Uh, This psalm was written by David, and you can see the superscription there, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. So the superscription uh, attributes it to him. Uh, It is directed, as you can see, to the chief musician or the choir master or leader of songs or something like that. Um, The word for psalm that is used does refer to instrumental music. Um, So it's it's a poem to be sung with musical accompaniment. That's just sort of the uh, description that's given there. Um, Now, there's no occasion that is given for the psalm. And really, there's not any particular time in in David's life or anything in the text that would really point us to any particular um, occasion. So to categorize this psalm, um, I categorize it as a prayer psalm. And it's one of those kind of psalms that almost defies categorization. Um, It has several elements in it, but it doesn't really stand out clearly. And so the reason I made that choice is because it opens up with direct address prayer to God And in fact, the entire psalm is directed directly to God. And it ends with a direct address petition. So there's a request in prayer that's made. So um, I I gave it the primary category of a prayer psalm. Um, Now, it does have a number of minor elements. Praise would be one of those. Um, There's certainly, um, there's not really a call to praise, which typifies, typically is what we see in a praise psalm, but there is mention of praise or certainly praiseworthy um, acts and attributes of God. Um, It has certain wisdom elements to it. It is also another psalm that has imprecatory elements, and so you have reference to the destruction of of the wicked and such. Um, And also, it's a psalm that has penitential elements to it. There is uh, the sort of the acknowledgement, the confession of, of, of wickedness or the possibility of wickedness um, as you get to the end of the psalm. This is also the second psalm of this final 
David group of Psalms in uh, book five and, and in all of um, the Psalms. It, and being, being such, it certainly has connections with this David group. And once again, we see these Psalms grouped together and we see certain thematic connections coming from the Psalms prior to that and then going, extending to the Psalms after that. And we see here, um, you know, the David um, group with themes of affliction and prayer and, and future hope and that sort of thing um, going through. And so we definitely get some connections there. Um, there's some connections back to 137 um, and, and with 138 that comes just before this. Um, you get references to sitting and walking and God's hand and God's right hand. And, of course, the imprecations at the end of 137 and here at the end of 139. Um, beyond that, I would also say that there are some significant connections with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 um, and this psalm as well. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 139, the, the uh, dominant feature would be the structure of the psalm. So, the psalm is very structured, and it's, it's much more um, hymnic in form. So you've got four stanzas of six verses each, and it's all very structured and balanced and, and sort of neatly contained in, in these um, four stanzas. But you also get a, a movement and a development as you, as you get to the end and, and the um, concluding petition um, that David makes at the end. This, as far as the, the imagery of the psalm, there's a lot of poetic expression in this psalm. Um, I noticed that, that some commentators refer to it as, as one of the most beautifully um, composed psalms, and there certainly is um, beautiful imagery um, in this psalm and, and very... Um, I don't know uh, whether you want to say intricate or um, maybe even a, a, a sophisticated um, construction of the psalm. Um, you have some references uh, of some spatial extremities. We've, we've seen this before um, where you get, you know, from east to west kind of thing. Um, so essentially the, the point is is that you know, from the furthest extent that way and the furthest extent that way and everywhere in between. And so it's just sort of a poetic way um, of saying everywhere, uh, essentially. And so you get, you get some of that. You get some of that going um, horizontally, earthwise, and some of that going vertically with the heavens and, and such. You also get uh, a lot of figurative language and, and expression in this psalm. And so one of the one of the great features, obviously, of the psalm is that it does it does produce just a beautiful effect. Um, there there is uh, there is a certain aesthetic quality to the psalm, but it's not just beauty of expression. It's also the beauty uh, of the of the expression is actually a function of the subject matter. And what I mean by that is, is that this psalm, from really from beginning to end, is focusing on incomprehensible attributes of God. And so this subject matter 
results in a, a treatment of finding accessible expressions for human beings. So how do you describe what is indescribable? How do you explain what is incomprehensible um, to someone? So when you see um, the, just the, the poetic um, nature of the language, realize that, that it's, it's sort of, it's giving us description of God in some sort of terms that we can relate to. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a woodenly literal sort of thing as if it were limiting God in this way or that. But again, it's more of a function of this, of this beauty of expression, um, which obviously poetic expression, there's, there's some license there to, to figurative language and that, and that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's sort of capturing what can't really be understood or expressed. And so it's not just, it, it is a beautiful poem, um, but it's not just beauty for beauty's sake. It's, it's, it's beauty of expression in service of communicating what is essentially incommunicable um, to us about God. Um, and then I would, the other thing I would say as far as poetic features of the psalm would be uh, just the voice of the psalm, all, all personal direct address. There's, there's no... Um, you've got just a little bit of, of reflective statement, but everything is directed, directly addressed to God, and it's, and it's personal. David speaking and not speaking on behalf of, of someone else or, or anything like that, but is speaking specifically and, and particularly um, to God. All right, so we want to work our way through the psalm uh, a little longer as far as the, the psalms at the end of this uh, book are concerned has 24 verses so I'm going to go ahead and read through this psalm O Lord thou hast searched me and known me thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising thou understandest my thought afar off thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways for there is not a word in my tongue but lo O Lord thou knowest it altogether Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in the, thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! 
If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." So the psalm opens up the first stanza, verses 1 to 6, and this particular stanza dwells in particular on the omniscience of God, uh, all-knowing. The idea of the word uh, for searching has the idea of examining. It's it's something that um, it it sort of indicates that there's some sort of process that is undertaken, a, a finding out, if you will. And so he says, you've, you've searched me and known me, which, which means that, that he's, he has sort of examined and come to full knowledge. God has thoroughly examined, and God knows him completely. Now, just as a remark, and I'm not going to do this at every line, but just as a, as a remark, so here at the very start, we see an example of what I was talking about with, with some of the poetic ex- expression. This is, this is an example where David is making something that's incomprehensible somewhat accessible. The point is not that God actually set out to look David over up and down and look inside as if he had to examine David to know what was in him. And we know that that's not the case, I mean, even from the rest of, of the psalm. But it is, again, it's, it's sort of that expression. It's, and David will later go on to say, you know, this knowledge is, is far beyond me, um, but, but you have known me. So, so ultimately what David is expressing is, is that God knows him completely, everything about him. And that's just going to be reinforced as you go through the psalm. So God has full knowledge of David in his history, in his present, in his future. And there's a word there in verse 2, translated thought. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Now that word that's used here for thought is is a word that means purpose or aim. You you know my aims. You know my purpose. You you know what it is that I intend. Um, In other words, it's not just sort of general for thoughts. And God understands that afar off. And, And part of the um, part of the, what comes out in, the, uh, in David's reflection in the psalm is that there's, there's no distance that removes him from God's knowledge of him. Um, and so we see that being expressed as well. The laying on of God's hand on David, um, which is, is something that can be in certain contexts um, negative in the sense of judgment or punishment or vengeance being come, um, but here, it's, it's not negative, and in fact, it's expressive of being held securely. And this complements the idea that he, gives, that he speaks of just before that, that, that God's all around him. In, in other words, God has encircled him, and God holds him securely. So again, it's, it's the idea that God knows him completely, and David finds comfort and security there and we'll maybe talk more about that as as we proceed and then we get to the um 
to the end of this first stanza, and David just acknowledged that, that, that he's astonished by God's knowledge. Um, it's something that's beyond him. It's, it's something that he can't grasp. How that the, the knowledge that God has um, of David personally, um, fully, completely, not, not just not just does God know, you know, the, the movements of the, of the stars and, and, and planets and, and all those sort of things and the tides of the sea. And, and you can say, well, you know, it's not just those big picture things uh, like God is sort of, you know, at a 30,000-foot view and just sort of observing um, movements here and there and, and things. No, David is, is fully, God knows me inside and out. He's going to go on to say essentially um, God knows, you know, even before he does anything, God knows. Um, that's, the, that's the nature of that knowledge. Well, omniscience then leads to, in the second stanza, there in verses 7 to 12, the reflection on God's omnipresence, the fact that, that God is all-present. He's, he's ever-present. He's, he's everywhere. And so he starts out by giving voice here, um, that, you know, where, where could he go? Where could he flee to? In other words, um, David is saying that he cannot express God's, or, I mean, he cannot escape God's presence. Now, using that word flee, uh, I think is, has led some to sort of think that David's expressing here that he wants away from God's presence, and there's, there's nothing of that at all in this psalm. In fact, it's quite, it's quite the opposite. But David is, is reflecting on this, on this attribute of God. Like, it's a way of saying, in a sense, no matter what happens to me, no, no matter where I might end up, and he's going he's to go through a number of options um, as we proceed in this stanza, no matter where I'm, I might end up, there's nowhere that I can go that would separate me from God, from his presence. So then we get this vertical extremity. We get heaven to hell, and the word for hell there is Sheol, which sometimes is the, is the grave, sometimes it's, it's a very... Uh, nebulous concept of the, the realm of the dead and, and the, the place of shades and darkness. And, and, um, but, I, but I don't really think the, um, you know, the literal meaning of, of this particular word is necessarily at issue here as much as, as David is expressing that extremity. It's, it's from the highest to the lowest. Again, it's, 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 it's reaching outside of this earth beyond down to what is considered under the earth. So it's, it's, it's everywhere um, in between. And in the very next verse, he goes horizontally along the earth. He talks about taking the wings of the morning, and this would be a reference to the dawn uh, and dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea. So uh, obviously um, in in David's time in Israel, um, there the the sea is to the west, the, the Mediterranean Sea, and the thoughts uh, are essentially makes the statement the uttermost parts of the sea, like if he if he goes to the end. So essentially, it's another way of just expressing east to west. The morning, dawns, the sunrise in the east, um, to the furthest extent, and to the furthest extent that I could go to the end of the sea to the west is essentially what he's saying. So you get, you get both verses, you get vertically um, from the earth and under the earth and, and into the heavens, uh, and then you sort of get horizontally, which would just, you know, everywhere on the earth. Um, he cannot escape from God's presence. God is there. Now, when he starts talking about the darkness um, here, 
the word for cover that is used is an interesting word because it actually means to crush or to overwhelm. There's certainly something very painful about it. Um, darkness would be something to David that is incomprehensible and impenetrable, such that he says the night would be light by comparison is, is the point. Nighttime, the nighttime darkness, and, you know, we're not used to um, real, you know, real darkness. Um, we have lights and street lights and lights on our houses and sources of light and things that come from different places. Um, you know, we're not, we're not used to, the, to that real, real, real darkness. But David says that would, be, that would be as light to him compared to this darkness. Now, again, it's one of those places, and you think, well, you know, well, what is David talking about in, in this darkness? And it's not entirely clear. Um, and again, it is poetic expression. But it seems, seems pretty certain that, that it, it could be um, some sort of spiritual oppression, you know, some, some sort of dimension that way. Uh, that, you know, in, in other words, it, it, it's an enemy um, and it's a threat that David can't overcome or can't withstand. He, he can't fight against. And then he goes on to express, though, but that kind of darkness... He says, it, that, that kind of darkness that wouldn't hide me from God. It's not impenetrable to him. And in fact, he goes on to basically say, it's the same. It's just the same as, as the noonday sun, you might say, um, to God. This darkness in no way obscures God's vision, nor does it impair his ability um, to know and to do, which is reflected on throughout this psalm. We get to the third stanza, and verses 13 to 18, and here um, David is reflecting on the omnipotence of God, the, the all power. Um, you can think of it as, as um, sovereignty, all, all power that, that God has. And um, David speaks particularly in, in this stanza about... Um, God's knowledge and his work, even in the formation of David. So David's conception, David's growing in the womb, was something that was secret and was hidden. And I know, you know, in our days that we have the, um, the ultrasounds and, uh, you know, they do the 4D ultrasounds and all, all those kind of things, and we can get quite a, quite a picture and... Um, you know, you, maybe you've seen a. Uh, I've seen you know some of those videos where they've they've did like a, a time lapse thing showing this baby developing and growing in, in the womb, and it's just a just remarkable um, to see if you if you ever if you ever see that. Um, so there's a lot that we know about that, and so the the point is not that you know David was just you know some sort of uh, you know hill country rube. Um, from southern Israel, didn't know anything that, you know, children were, you know, formed in a womb and all that. Again, it's just the poetic expression. And, and the, the point is that it's something that's, it's something that's hidden. It's something that's secret, that goes on. And like men can't, could, you know, can't intervene 
Um, you know, like there's nothing that they could do. And again, particularly in that time, and I know that there's various things doctors do um, today, but his point is, is that that's, that's so far out of David's knowledge or his ability. What could he do um, himself as a child developing in the womb or thinking about maybe even his own children or, or what have you? Yet God knew and God was at work. And he, and he does use that, that sort of uh, language that he was you know, fashioned and, and formed and woven together and that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, let me see. Lost my place there just for a second. Okay, so... Oh, okay. So, and then in verse 15, he talks about the substance being hidden, made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And, um, and again, this is not, you know, something that, you know, David didn't understand basic biology, um, that he, you know, thought children were fashioned, you know, underground somewhere. Um, again, the, the point is that it's, that it's hidden, that it's secret. It's, a, it's away from the eyes and the knowledge of men. It's away from, from you know, David's eyes and, and um, David's knowledge. And um, he talks about even, you know, being seen when he was unperfect or incomplete um, and such. And then, then we come down to this was, uh, this was the verse I was wanting to get to. Then we come down to verse 17. And David talks about God's thoughts. And now the same word is used here as was used back in verse 2. This is God's purpose toward David, God's aim with David. So as he's been talking about reflecting on how he was even you know, conceived and, and developing in, in the womb, that God had thoughts toward him. God had a purpose toward David. Long before David was ever even aware of his own existence or aware of God's purpose. And then he talks about how they're, being more, they're more in number than the sand. And again, he's not talking about here that God just has you know, happy thoughts toward David, but that God has a purpose toward David, and it requires thousands upon thousands of direct and indirect events to be fulfilled you know just for example you go back to Ruth and Boaz in the fields there in Bethlehem and you know they end up being married having children ultimately David is born out of that family what if Ruth had stayed with Orpah you know back in in Moab I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go up there uh, among those those Israelites well Again, you, when you start thinking about these kind of things, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands and probably I should use much bigger numbers, really, of, of events that are connected and they all sort of fall into place. And, and we look at just the tiny, minuscule little piece and, and we think this is random. We think this is nonsensical, this you know, this is bad, or what have you. And David is saying just the opposite of that. There are, there are so many things that David don't even know or, or can even 
imagine, and yet God has his purpose toward David that's going to be fulfilled. All of these events will have their place and their time, and all and God's purpose will be fulfilled. Now, even uh, David talks about, um, you know, when he when he awakes, God is still there. Um, so even when David passes out of consciousness and you know is asleep, well, he's not away from God, and he's not out of the sight or the knowledge of God. Every, every morning, again, God is still with him. So that brings us to the last stanza of the psalm. And this stanza very much reflects on judgment. So we get mention of God's purpose toward David, and then that's followed up with judgment. So David speaks of God's purpose here to judge the wicked. This is what he's talking about. And that's, that's God's purpose. That's, it's, it's everywhere. Genesis to Revelation, that God is going to judge the wicked is, is on, you know, almost every page you might say in a sense of the bible and notice as you as you read this description david's not talking about you know his neighbor um someone that's you know doing something to to irritate him and now he's talking about god's enemies and they rise up against god in fact he's echoing psalm 2 um those that oppose god uh, they rise up against him. They oppose God. They oppose God's purpose. In other words, as David is, and, and even when he gets and he talks, he's, he's expressing in like in verse 21, do not I hate them, O Lord. In other words, he's given an expression that is sort of counter or, or maybe you know, it goes along with places like Psalm 37 that David wrote about, about not being envious of the wicked and the evildoers. In other words, Dave, David is, is, is saying, I, I, I am on the Lord's side. I am on the Lord's side. Um, that's where he's going to stand. Psalm 73, which is a psalm of Asaph, um, talks about, that, about how he, for a time, was beginning to be envious of the wicked because they, they seemed to be prospering. And those that are, are waiting on the Lord in faith seem to be suffering. And so he's beginning to be envious um, against them. Of course, then he, Psalm 73, a wonderful psalm, um, you know, he, he comes to understand better. Um, and this is the same sort of thing that, that we're getting from David here. Um, in other words, how, how he's going to count them as his, if they're the, the enemies of God. He's going to count as his enemies. He is on um, the Lord's side. And then we end with this petition um, for God to, to search him and, and to know him, to try him, know his thoughts. Now, the word here is a different word. It's, it's just it's general, just general for thoughts. Um, and see if there's any wicked way. And again, there's, there's just an acknowledgement here. You know, Lord, I need to be searched and I need to be, I need to be cleansed and, and lead me in the way of everlasting life. All right, so that brings us to our interpretation. Um, Psalm 139 uh, is, is all about, again, um, the attributes of God. It's all about God. Um, so I, I've, I've seen some refer to this as, as a very introspective psalm, as, as if David is you know, sitting around 
contemplating himself and, and his innermost being. And that's just, I, that's just not true at all. Um, it, it, it is not introspective toward David. It is, it's, it's David um, contemplating God and what you might say the Godhood of God. Things like omnipotence and, and omnipresence and omniscience and um, you know, immutability and, and on and on we could go with these different attributes of God. So David is contemplating in his psalm what he could understand of God and particularly the fact that God knew him completely. There's no thought, no word, no action of David that's unknown to God, which is also true of every one of us here tonight as well as every other human being on the planet. There's not a day in David's life that was unknown to God. Even as he's penning this psalm and still has days ahead of him, there's not one of those days that God does not know and know fully. So on the one hand, what, what, do, you, what do you do with that kind of knowledge, with that kind of realization? Well, on the one hand, that's quite terrifying. I mean, to think that God knows everything about each one of us, every thought, every word, every action, every intention, every motive, everything. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves that well, and yet he knows everything about us. And he's an all-powerful God who is all-knowing, and he's all-righteous. And so there's, there's a certain way of thinking about that, that that would be terrifying. And I think that, that David is actually responding to, to that um, sort of natural response to this kind of, of information or knowledge. He, rather than being terrified, David's actually expressing hope and security. He's actually praising God in this psalm. Now, if, why, why is that or how, how could that be? Well, it's because of God's aim or God's purpose for David. You see, David is in covenant relationship with God. He's taking refuge in the Lord. And David knows that, that he's not of himself um, righteous and, and able to stand in God's presence. He, he knows that. So when you think about what David is saying here, that even though God knows David like this, nevertheless, God has a purpose toward David and is working out thousands and thousands of things that David can't, he couldn't even possibly know about to bring that to completion. And everything in this psalm points to the fact that David knows that it's God alone that does it. David's not helping God. He's not, he's not going to bring any of this about. He is, he is in things that are way beyond him 
to deal with, but God will do it. So, again, he sees security. He sees hope in this knowledge because even though God has this knowledge, he knows David this way, still yet, he's not forsaken David. He is, he is present with David, and he's working out his purpose toward him. Well, the messianic hope of this psalm is seen through God's purpose concerning David. Um, and that purpose, in particular, the promise of a son from David to sit on his throne forever over Israel and over the nations of the world. And we've, we've just recently encountered this, Psalm 132 and verse 11. Uh, it, it corresponds with Psalm 110, uh, corresponds with Psalm 89 and other, other, other places as well. This is God's purpose, his thoughts toward David or his thought toward David that um, again thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of, of things are ordered and, and connected and, and, are, and are you know brought into being and brought about bringing these things about. Now of course the connections with Psalm 2 show the enemies opposed to God uh, and, and when we go back to Psalm 2 they're not just opposed to God they're opposed to God and his anointed we're told in psalm 2 so they oppose god and they oppose his son and in fact psalm 2 tells us very plainly that if they do not kiss the son they don't if they don't bow to him they will be crushed by him and so again this is what uh, david is tapping into as he prays in this psalm all right, application, um, three of these. Number one, and really I think there could have been whew, <laughs> so many applications uh, really in a psalm like this, but number one, understanding Psalm 139 helps us understand how to think about God. Um, and, and obviously, again, we're, we're, not, we're never going to fully comprehend um, God and all of his ways and, and all of his being. and um, But thinking about God and his perfections, his perfect knowledge, we see that like David, it, it should give us security. For everyone that trusts in him, for all those who trust in him, then that knowledge gives us security and, and hope. I mean, no one knows you better than God does. And if, if he is forgiven and saved you then what do you think you're going to do to separate yourself from the love of christ i mean there, there's a security in that there, there's a, a freedom in that now um, a lot of things we could say about that but number two understanding psalm 139 helps us understand this close relationship between affliction waiting and prayer and so if you think about the psalms of david throughout the whole collection you we you run into this again and again and again and again suffering affliction suffering persecution in distress waiting and praying and so and this actually this does lead actually toward the conclusion of the psalm i mean in a way you read psalm 139 and you think well 
you know, it seems like we've kind of gotten beyond this, really. I mean, you know, this is like going back to the beginning of the, of the Psalms, reading this sort of thing from, from David. But you realize it's, it, it, is, it is leading and, and, and building up toward the end of this, uh, the end of this in the Psalms. So, again, it, 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 is the, it is the response, but it is also something that, you know, informs us. I mean, we understand our expectation. Number three, understanding Psalm 139 helps us understand that each one of us are relieved of the burden of running this universe. That burden is not ours to carry. That's, that's just not on us. That's on him. And he knows very well what he is doing.